0: Hello and welcome to the Hidden Wire Podcast, Episode One Thousand and Eleven. This is my interview with Doctor Gleb Siporsky, and we're discussing his books and his work about future proofing. Hello, Doctor Gleb. Welcome to the Hidden Wire Podcast. Great to have you here today. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate
0: it. You've, uh, you've you're a bit of a prolific author, aren't you? You've written many books.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. So seven books by now, and uh, yeah, a couple of them have been global bestsellers, which I'm very pleased about couple of them have not done so
0: well, but that's life, you know. You <laughs> can't always set it out of the park. you got several out of uh, a whole bunch, and that's fairly good. You've got a nice book collection by the looks of it on the, on the wall behind you. All
1: sorts oh, that's of right, yes.
0: Different books yep. there as well, and you've got a new book out, which we're going to discuss today. But um, before we jump into that, mate, I always like to get a bit of a background into um, the person we're speaking with. So what, what is your background?
1: My background is, my expertise and background is in decision-making, so how do we make our decisions and how do we protect ourselves against an increasingly disrupted future? So future-proofing is the outcome of my expertise. How people make good decisions, manage risks, well, to protect themselves, future-proof themselves against this unknown future, the increasingly disrupted future. I've been doing this since 1999 now, so over two decades. Wow. <clears throat> and I've been fascinated by decision-making since that time, I mean, since earlier, since I was a kid, when I saw my parents making some, you know, telling me to go with my gut, follow my intuitions, well, the kind of thing you always hear about. How do you make decisions? And I saw that they were making some bad decisions in their life, in their marriage, by going with their gut, following their intuitions. So that was a problem. And it helped me see that maybe that wasn't such wise advice on their part. And then I also saw what happened as leaders were. Praised for following their gut, trusting their intuition, and so on. When there was a dot com boom, I came of age in a dot com boom. So I was 18 in 1999 when uh, the dot com web band, head dot com, dot com were partying like it's 1999. For those who remember that print song, that was a while ago. Yeah. <laughs> and then just, you know, and they were praised uh, in the Wall Street Journal and all these media. And just a couple of years later, they all went bust in 2001, 2002 when I was 21. And that helped me see that you know, these leaders, these top leaders, you know, they were praised one day, they were criticized another, but they were making decisions in the same way. It's not like they were making them in any way different. But that helped me see that those people who we think of as you know, the top leaders also don't know what they're talking about in terms of making decisions when they talk about going with their gut. And so I to study this, and that was something that was always fascinating for me. And I started consulting, coaching, and training already from 1999, as I mentioned. I also went into academia, so I spent 15 years in academia. So over 20 years in consulting, coaching, and training, around 15 years in academia, I got my PhD at UNC Chapel Hill, and then I taught for seven years as a professor at Ohio State University in the decision mm. science collaborative in the history department. And so that's kind of my academic background. And all that time, I was moonlighting as a consulting coach and trainer. But about a few years ago, I think about three years ago, I went full-time, private, running a small consulting company called Disaster Avoidance Experts that focuses on this kind of stuff, on future-proofing uh, through making the wisest decisions and managing risks as well. So that's kind of my background and expertise. I've been writing books for a while. I have over, have over 550 articles in venues like Fortune, Scientific American, and coming out on Fortune next week. I have a Scientific American piece that came out like yesterday. Psychology Today, CNBC, Inc. Magazine, Fast Company, all these sorts of places. say Today. That's kind of my a little bit about, about my background. My work mm. has been it has world renown. Uh, it's been translated into published and translate, translated translated published in Chinese, Russian, Korean, Polish, German, other languages. So that's what I do. That's what I. That's why I'm.
0: That's you, that's you. Well, nicely explained too. Um, A very interesting topic. I mean, not too many people you you meet that sort of um, are in this field that you're in of future-proofing. And and I assume future-proofing doesn't just relate to businesses that you work with necessarily, but just life in general. Um, I guess we all have to make good decisions to protect the uncertainty of our futures.
1: Um, We do, and it definitely impacts people's personal lives. I mean, I focus on working with Business executives, because those are the folks who have the money to afford me. But uh, my books are read and used by by folks in all walks of life. Yeah. And talking about relationships, one of my books is really focusing on relationships, professional and personal, called The Blind Spot Between Us How to Overcome Unconscious Cognitive Bias and Build Better Relationships. Mm. That would be, talking about relationships and personal life, that would be a really interesting book for folks.
0: Yeah, yeah. They're all very. Um really fascinating topics, you know,
1: yeah.
0: um, and, and fairly critically important, I would think, too. Um, I don't know much about this future food-proofing and, and decision-making process. Where do you start when you're trying to explain what you do and how we can improve decisions?
1: Well, what we first want to do also when we're thinking about improving decisions is not trust our intuition, not trust our gut. Why is that? Why so is that? Our yeah. Gut, yeah, why is that, right? Our gut if we're advised to go with our guts, you know, trust our heart. You know, Tony Robbins tells us to be primal, be savage. And Malcolm Gladwell tells you to make your decision in the blink of an eye, his folks blink. That's trust your intuition, right? Unfortunately, when you look at the research on intuition, you look at the research on gut reactions, they are not adapted to the modern world. Our intuition is a, adapted to the savanna environment. And we used to live in small tribes of 50 people to 150 people. So the modern world has really been around since the 1990s with the rise of the Internet. We haven't had time to evolve for it. It takes many thousands of years to really actually evolve for our emotions, our intuitions. What evolves much faster is our culture, and that's much more of the rational component, the head part, rather than the gut part of our thinking and decision-making. But People tend not to go with their heads, and especially in the more important decisions. They tend to trust our gut, and that's a big problem because our gut, again, is adapted to that savannah environment, we rely on things like the fight-or-flight response. I mean, savannah environment, that was very important. So a very strong fight-or-flight response. If you didn't have a strong fight-or-flight response, you need to jump at a hundred shadows to get away from that one saber-tooth tiger. Hmm. (laughs) If you didn't didn't get away from that saber-tooth tiger, well, you know what, you wouldn't be here today because your ancestors would be dead. (laughs) So we are all the descendants of those who have a very strong fight-or-flight response. Similarly, tribalism, right? Why is our world so screwed up and polarized in so many ways right now? And with all the discriminations, all these problems. Well, tribalism has a lot to do with it. In the Savannah environment, it was very important for us to be tribal, meaning look for people who are like us, trust them, ally with them, who have, who look like us, who share our values, predispositions, background, and be hostile to those who are part, not part of our tribe, the outgroup. Because if we weren't sufficiently loyal to our tribe, we'd be kicked out of our tribe and we'd die. And if we weren't sufficiently hostile to outsiders, they take over our tribe and we die. And again, yeah. you notice, we're the descendants of those who didn't die. And as a result, we have all of these inbuilt intuitions, that reactions, emotions, your heart, whatever you say, that lead us in the wrong direction. Again, yeah. tribalism is a clear example where we're very tribal as human beings, but in the modern world, multipolar, complex global world, organizations, companies, and just ordinary life, that's a very bad idea. And we rely on the fight or flight response. We have way exaggerated responses in the modern world. We tend to jump to conclusions very quickly without nearly enough information. That was great in the savanna environment when we need to not think about getting away from the saber-tooth tiger, but jump. That was great. In the modern world, that's a terrible thing, and still, leaders and ordinary people are praised for going, making judgments quickly going with their gut and you know trusting their heart and all that so these is are it
0: always wrong to trust our gut because sometimes i feel in my occupation and in other parts of my life actually i probably often do go <laughs> with my gut but um sometimes i feel i go with my gut and it, and it makes you know right sense and it seems to turn out that way is there times when our intuition is good to guide us
1: well, so what happens with your gut is that sometimes your gut is going to be right and sometimes it's going to be wrong. Yeah. But you should never simply trust it. That's the thing. So that's the uh. problem when we trust our intuition. Now, there are some situations where research shows, and by the way, this is all based on research in behavioral science, behavioral economics, cognitive neuroscience, psychology, all that stuff. We can talk about the research. But when you look at the research on where you can not worry about it and not check with your head, just go with your gut, there's only very small domains, specific domains. You might have heard about getting 10,000 hours of practice in a certain area to be considered master, right? You don't actually need 10,000 hours of practice in these areas. But what you need is a great deal of practice, so maybe you know, 1,000 hours or something like that, just ballparking here. depends on the area, right? Different areas for different things where you get a lot of feedback very quickly on whether you're right or wrong. So, for example, you probably have a lot of experience seeing your email and being able to tell, is this a spam email or is this an important email, <laughs> right? You can tell that at the blink of an eye, right? Very quickly, it's very. It's pretty obvious from spam emails, from your experience seeing, oh, is this a spam email? I clicked on it. I shouldn't have clicked on it. I should have just deleted it immediately. Yeah. And so right now, you have a lot of experience and you're pretty good at that. And that is the reality for most folks in the developed world or have email, right? Yeah, well yeah. that's that, 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 that's an example of an area. Let's go to a different area in business settings. If you are have P N L responsibility and if you've been in P N L profit and loss responsibility for a while, you can take a look at the P L spreadsheet and say, okay, you know, this is how the department is doing, this is how the division is doing because you've looked at a lot of it and you can tell very quickly what's going on there. Yeah. Those are the kind of things where You can trust your intuition and not go, not check it. But that's not the kind of things that we usually have and not the kind of decisions we usually face. We face decisions about, well, am I going to work with this person or not? What kind of message communication should I be sending? Who should I hire? What kind of strategy should I be pursuing? What kind of vendors should I be working with? Those are the much more, what kind of systems and processes should I implement? Those are the kinds of things that people tend to trust their intuition about, but they really, really should not. They should very much check with their head and not go with their gut.
0: Gotcha. So what's the difference between this unconscious, um, I guess, learning that guides us in our decision making? Because I guess a lot of that is through practice and experience where we have this unconsciousness that actually helps us do it so we don't have to use that energy to make those decisions going forward. What's the difference between that and intuition? Or is there a difference? Or is that exactly what intuition is?
1: It's not really a difference uh, because people use those terms very vaguely and you know, problematically. So I wrote a book called Never Go With Your Guts, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions to Avoid Business Disasters, which talks about this very topic. Your intuition, when people think say intuition, they usually talk about the same thing as gut reactions, as emotions, as your heart. They don't differentiate. And here's the thing. The difficult, really difficult thing about not trusting your gut is that it feels right. It feels comfortable by definition. Not going with your gut is counterintuitive. (laughs) It goes against your intuition. So all of that feelings that you feel inside, whatever you identify those feelings inside you that are pushing you to do something and are telling you this is the right thing to do, well, you know what? You You can't say whether you're looking at someone and, you know, let's say they happen to be of a different skin color than you. You can't say whether you are going to be more willing or less less willing to hire them because they're a different skin color than you because of their actual qualifications or because of that tribal sensibility. We have a lot of research showing that people unconsciously discriminate against others without realizing it because of tribalism. We have a lot of information that people don't take nearly enough time and don't look at nearly enough data before making judgments. Before coming to conclusions. And <laughs> that's very regrettable. You know, in my book, the new book that you uh, and I talked about, Returning to Office and Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams, mm. a manual and benchmarking to best practices for competitive advantage, I talk about a lot of bad decisions that people make, that leaders make, that cause them to go in the wrong direction because of these dangerous judgment errors. So, a specific ways that our mind is miswired due to the savanna environment evolutionary background, just due to the wiring and structure of our brains, which we can go into, oh, that's kind of the cognitive neuroscience part, they are called cognitive biases. So cognitive mm. biases are these specific dangerous judgment errors that cause us, that they are the patterns, they are the ways that we are miswired, but cause us to, that are associated with us making these bad decisions. The so specific ways, that you know, the researchers have shown that we make bad decisions, that the patterns, those are the cognitive biases. And there are over a hundred of them. You know, if you're curious, you can take a look at the list of cognitive biases in Wikipedia and look, look at all the research that provides the basis for them. You'll see that there's over a hundred of these cognitive biases. Yeah, well. And I talk about, in my work about the most important ones for various areas of your life, whether your relationships, whether your fundamental decision-making, like never go to your gut, a book on relationships is the blind spot between us, or this new book on returning to the office and leading hybrid and remote teams.
0: Yeah. So what are, what are a couple of those, um, the key ones that you talk about, the cognitive biases?
1: So let's talk about the specific ones from my latest book on returning to the office and leading hybrid and remote teams.
0: Yeah.
1: There are really going to be six fundamental cognitive biases that are really problematic for leaders. One of these, one of the biggest ones for leaders making bad decisions yeah. is called the status quo bias. Okay. The status quo bias. We prefer, we like to stay with what we perceive as the status quo or get back with if it's been shifted. And it's kind of understandable in the Savannah environment, so going back to the Savannah environment, why that would be, again, as I mentioned, a lot of these cognitive biases come from the Savannah environment. In the Savannah environment, when you go away from the status quo, that's a problem because the situation in the Savannah environment is that If you go away from what's there, the traditions, the stability, you're likely not going to survive. It was a very precarious environment. And so that drives us to not like uncertainty, not like change, and to go back to the status quo. So we see leaders who are successful for 20, 30, 40 years in their career through in-office activities, driving their teams back to the office and making some pretty bad decisions while they're doing it so for example Mm. google and we're talking about like trillion dollar companies right google was saying for many many months throughout the pandemic that once vaccination is widely available everyone will go back to the office i was saying this for many 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 months and once vaccination started becoming widely available in late, late spring of this year yeah you know the workers at google from my internal sources started to be frustrated that they were being driven back to the office and the Google leadership was saying, oh, now we need to go back to the office, because they discovered that, you know, during this time, they can clearly do their work remotely fine, and they don't need to be in the office. So a lot of people were pissed at Google, and some started leaving, and other morale took a big hit, productivity engagement. So eventually, Google recognized that they screw up, and they said, on May 5th that, you know, we screwed up, we're now not going to force everyone to go back to the office, Up to 20% of our workforce will be allowed to work fully remotely, and another 20% can work from any office where they want, because plenty of people moved away from the offices where they previously worked. And that cost Google billions and billions of dollars in lost workers, of course these are high-paid, high-tech workers who will be very expensive to replace. And in productivity, engagement, morale with distrust for the leadership. And in just changing plans. I mean, they had to do a lot of plan changing, and that cost them a lot of money. That's yeah, because yeah. such a big company. Hmm. So that's one example. And you know what? Same thing happened at Amazon. Amazon changed its mind and said, we screwed up on June 10th. Same way, for same reason. And the same thing with Uber on June 24th. Apple is undergoing worker rebellion right now where a lot of workers aren- don't want to be back in the office. And the uh, Apple CEO Tim Cook is saying, we need to all, everyone go back to the office. And this happens at all companies. These are just a huge trillion trillion dollar companies, right? <laughs> Doesn't get much bigger than Apple and Google.
0: What happened yeah. with Uber? Huh? What, what happened with Uber, you're talking about Uber. Uber. Same,
1: same, yeah, Uber same thing. Office workers and that. Yeah, we screwed up. We are going to now allow people much more flexibility. So this is shows that lead, these leaders were making clearly bad decisions that mm. they had to go back and screw up. And because of the status quo bias is a huge one that's leading to it. Now, a related, so that was one. And the related cognitive, not related, but another cognitive bias that's really important here is called the false consensus effect. The false consensus effect. Now, the false consensus effect causes us to believe that those who are in our tribal groups, we perceive those to be on our tribe, would share our beliefs. So much greater extent than they actually do. Now, in the Savannah environment, it was actually generally the case that those in our tribe mostly shared our values. Hmm. In the modern environment, much less the case, because people who are in our tribe, in our work tribe, are much less likely to share our other values and predispositions. So this leadership at Google, at Amazon, at Uber, at Apple, felt that their workers would generally agree with them and go back to the office, even if they would be complaining about it. Obviously, they didn't realize that the strength of the feelings of these workers and that the strength, the negative sentiment of the workers, led these companies to reverse their decisions, which for each company cost many billions of dollars in lost workers, and lost engagement, and having to change plans. Yeah. You know, Apple soon didn't change its plans, but I suspect it eventually will. We'll see. But it's definitely losing a lot of workers right now. And we know that from the internal rebellion of Apple workers, which has become public, which is very rare for Apple workers to actually speak out. They're pretty loyal. Right. So that's the false consensus effect. Now, here's another one that's really important, called the confirmation bias. If you've heard about any cognitive biases, yeah. you've probably heard about this one. So we tend to look for information that confirms our beliefs, mm. and we ignore information that does not confirm our beliefs, yeah. and that's a big problem. So when mm. you look at how leaders are looking for information about returning to the office, and I say this, I mean, like I mentioned, I've already helped 17 organizations transition back to the office. Many of the leaders don't actually survey their teams. They act, What they do is they see the, the CEO talks to the C-suite, the C-suite talks to the senior VPs, and that's all. They all agree that yes, we want to go back to office. That's going to be the right thing to do, and that's what happens. They go back to the office. Well, they are all coming from the same position, from the same background of have, being leaders and successful for 20, 30, 40 years in their careers through in-office experiences. So this is a problem, the confirmation bias. And yeah. I'll tell you about another last one, and the other two I'll leave for the book for a few folks who want to read it. The other one that I wanted to talk about is called Functional Fixedness. Functional fixedness, now what's that about? You might have heard the hammer-nail syndrome, where mm. when we have a hammer, everything looks fixed like a nail. Mm. Well, functional fixedness refers to that tendency. So when we have one way of collaborating, when we learn one way of doing something, solving problems, uh, collaborating together, tool sets, mental tool sets, we apply those to everything else that we do. And so that is a huge problem when people are trying to work in a remote setting or in a hybrid setting. So what happened in March 2020, the lockdowns, right? Everything was shut down, people shut down, and they didn't have a good way of collaborating virtually. So they imposed their in-office ways of collaborating on virtual formats. Things like using Zoom happy hours, which are not a good thing. We have research showing they actually cause disengagement rather than engagement and morale and team collaboration. Zoom happy hours are not helpful.
0: What is Zoom happy hour? i never heard of it.
1: Oh, okay. You've never, you, you're lucky. So, Zoom happy hour is when everyone is supposed to go on Zoom and have social time and just socialize with each other. When all the members of a team or department or division, that's what a Zoom happy hour is. And so, that does not work well because it works fine for when you have an actual happy hour in person <laughs> and when you can you know, communicate, chat with other people, But it does not work well when you're small squares on a screen. So that's something that is not a good idea.
0: What have they found with Zoom happy hours? Like what are the consequences there or the the side effects, I guess? Obviously, it's not popular.
1: Disengagement. So people are less engaged. So the goal of having team members take their time, I mean they're taking time away from the work tasks to go do Zoom happy hour, is better culture, better morale, better Mm -hmm. engagement, better teams what you actually look at the research you see that it causes the opposite it's oh taking people's time but it causes disengagement less teamwork less collaboration people feel forced they feel alienated it's not a good thing and it's just one example out of very many where transposing imposing in office culture on hybrid and remote settings causes a lot of problems so throughout this period throughout you know that over 18 months of the pandemic, leaders have unfortunately used the same tools—managers, leaders, team leads, whatever—use the same tools to try to collaborate in virtual settings and hybrid settings as they have for full-time in-person activities, which does yeah. not work well You need to strategically adapt them, and my book talks about the specific techniques that you need to strategically adapt your collaboration, your innovation, your productivity your performance evaluation your culture your diversity equity inclusion to and your training your professional development to virtual settings and Mm. hybrid so how do you lead hybrid teams how do you lead virtual teams
0: yeah i mean there's a lot to relearn here um for for business uh, in general what is your do you see this lasting a long time this new hybrid remote work environment like do you think we're going to stay this way and we're actually going to be even more reduced because at the moment I still see people going back to offices um, partic- particularly in the public sector here in Australia a lot of people going back to the offices um, a lot of businesses too that don't require like retail obviously need someone there in person but even that business model is going online now you know where you can purchase mm-hmm. things online so do you see it transforming majorly from here or, or reverting yeah, back so
1: we're talking about the 50% of the people who can do their work remotely So that's about the average ratios in modern developed economies, whether in Australia, whether in the U.S., whether in Germany, Europe, whatever. And so, yes, what we're seeing is definitely a shift to a hybrid model where people realize that, you know, they don't need to be in the office to do their tasks. And in fact, when you look at the research, people are highly, highly more productive at home on their individual tasks. On average, people are... On, depending on the kind of tasks they do, but uh, on average they're 10 to 14 more percent more productive when they work at home. 10 mm. to 14 percent higher productivity per person, and the, it goes for even higher on your individual tasks, which makes sense because you know on your individual tasks you're not disrupted, you're not disturbed, you can just focus. It's much better for people, and people work longer because mm. they don't have to do the commute. The, you know, the commute is unpaid labor, you know. In big cities, it can be as much as an hour or even more to get to your office from your home yeah, yeah, and yeah. then go back. That you know, that's- and that, See, that's,
0: I, I still wonder about that. I, I am a, you know, I guess, highly disciplined sort of person with my time and got a high level of motivation. So working from home, I always have done it and I've done it fairly well. Um, but I, I just feel that a lot of people maybe can't have that because they lack that motivation and I still, you know, I'd be interested to see where they get the, the statistics from saying that more people that work from home are more highly productive and work longer because I sort of assume that people probably wouldn't work harder um, when they're not being watched.
1: Right, so that is a simple gut reaction mistake that you're making. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that's so all right. That's That's, not the, that's not the case at all. When you're looking at data from, and my book talks about that, it talks about Peer-reviewed data talks about surveys. It, so surveys of people it talks about well, organizations like Microsoft using Microsoft team internal data on their on the productivity and performance of people. Slack, same things, using internal data on productivity and performance of people shows very clearly that people are working longer when they are working from home on average during the lockdowns. On average, virtual workers worked twenty hours longer compared to their previous time work, and so because they didn't have to do this unpaid labor of the commute, and so they worked quite a bit longer, and they were more productive. So, is this all, a
0: sample of workers across a broad spectrum of um, yes. occupations? Yes,
1: yeah. It's, um, uh, it's everyone who worked on Microsoft Teams, everyone who worked on Slack. So yes, across all sorts of companies, across all sorts of businesses, large, small, everything. So, yes, people are highly more pr- productive. Now, that certainly not, does not apply to everyone. Not that everyone is more productive. There are, when you look at surveys of people's desire to go back to the office, on average, around 20%, 15 to 20%, depending on the survey, want to go back to the office full-time. And they are more productive there. They like their environment. When you other people, around 25 to 35%, want full-time remote work. So they want to work remotely full time and the rest want a hybrid schedule of maybe something like one to two days a week in the office. So that's the majority of the people. So when you look at that, something like 55, 60 percent want a hybrid schedule. So given that and given the difficulties with getting workers and getting good workers, it's very clear that the future is hybrid. And that's what people are moving forward and companies are moving forward.
0: Mm. What's the um, reluctancy to do this for employers? Um, is it just because they feel that their staff won't be as productive or that they...
1: No, it's not. It's the status quo bias, it's the confirmation bias, it's the post consensus effect, it's functional fixedness. So, the status quo bias they feel, their gut tells them it's the right thing to do. And it's pretty dumb. I mean, when you look at Google and when you see all their work can be done remotely, right? pretty much all their work can be done remotely. And it's very clear that people want to work remote and they know they have internal data showing that people are more productive working remotely. But they want their staff back in the office because the leadership feels that's the right way to work. It's it's, it's really not very smart. (laughs) And it's just the same sort of thing that leaders tend to do. They make bad decisions because they feel that a certain way of collaborating is right. They don't even investigate better ways, that's kind of one dynamic. Status quo bias, confirmation bias, false consensus, effect. that's one dynamic. Functional fixedness is a distinct and very important dynamic because they don't investigate better ways of working. They don't investigate better ways of innovating. I mean, lots of leaders say, well, I want more innovation for my team. That's BS. When you look at actual best practices for innovation in virtual teams and hybrid teams, you can have more innovation than in-person teams when you use the right approaches, when you don't use things like Zoom happy hours. There are definitely ways of getting that, but you need to not have that functional fixiveness and try to innovate or collaborate in the same ways that you did when you're in office environment.
0: Mm. So what a, how do leaders embrace people from working from home to give them you know that leadership. Make sure you know people are being productive. Motivate them without being distrusting or or um, watching them. You know, because I know there's different programs and stuff you can watch your people. But I assume sure. that um going remotely, it's it's a lot more obvious when you're being watched than being at work, for example.
1: Yeah, when you look at the research on those sort of programs and monitoring, you'd substantially decrease people's productivity when you monitor them and you also decrease your attention because people are not likely to work for you when they can go to work for another company that doesn't do that sort of dumb thing. So no, it's a bad idea to watch people. Instead, what and I talk about this in the book, what you need to do is transform your performance evaluation because right now, like you talked about watching people, the vast majority of performance evaluations, you have one big performance evaluation done annually, and it's based, generally speaking, on how m- much and the amount of time that the worker has spent working. So how much yeah. have you worked? Yeah. So that's kind of a basis, typical basis for performance evaluation. That's one big evaluation. That is not going to credit for the hybrid and remote setting. So what you need to do is change your performance evaluation from amount of time spent work to deliverables, accomplishments. What did the person get done? What do they need to get done? What are their goals? And how do they perform against those goals? When you have that, now that's kind of one dynamic. Then you also need to not evaluate that once a year because obviously you have many smaller goals and you want to evaluate those. What you need to do is transform to once a week evaluation for once every two weeks if you have a large team. But generally once a week for six to eight people, teams is the right pattern. So once a week, small evaluations, brief ones, when you have a 15 to 30 minutes, when let's say you're a supervisor. So what you do is you have your supervisee send you a brief report on their page listing what were their top three to five accomplishments for the week compared to the accomplishments they set. So they set some accomplishments last week. How did they do on these accomplishments? What kind of problems they faced? How did they solve these problems? What kind of self-evaluation would they give themselves? And finally, what are their plans for the top three to five accomplishments going forward for next week? And then the supervisor responds that in writing briefly before a meeting, and then they hold a 15 to 30-minute meeting where they discuss these accomplishments, maybe coach the supervisee on solving the problems better, they agree or revise in the performance evaluation, and then they agree or revise on the plans for the goals to accomplish next week. That requires absolutely no watching of the employee, (laughs) that gives the person full autonomy, and you know what if they get their goals met in a shorter period of time than the standard 40 hours great wonderful please go ahead because your go- what you should be measured on is your deliverables for the company your accomplishments not the amount of time spent work who cares how much time you spent work if you work smarter and not harder great do those accomplishments get your things done great and it's you know sometimes you have more problems and you need to work longer to solve them, that's also the case. So that is what people should be measured on. And so uh, that meeting, that report and that meeting, those small weekly goals all get fed into a continuous promotion and evaluation system. So you don't have that one huge annual review where people don't know what they're being reviewed for, they don't know the expectations, and you know, they get blindsided and surprised. That's, that's no good.
0: Mm. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. And I think that's a, that's a great way to, to manage a business is on performance rather than just on the time they put in. And I actually, had someone mention to me the other day, they they um, they work really hard, and and they just wished that rather than working until the end of the day, if they got everything done, which they normally do, in a shorter time, that they could go home and spend some time with yep. family or whatever. Which I agree. Um, but there's there's got to be you know some some roles I suppose or some careers that have more definable goals and measures than other professions would you think or can no, we put
1: i don't know, i don't think that you have when you have any any career any profession you have certain goals that you want to meet There are mm. certainly some more well some careers might have more let's say you're a salesperson there are a number of sales calls you make and there are a number of you know your rate of closing deals and your rate of generating leads right mm. so That's doable. When you are, I don't know, when you are a podcast host, right? You have a number of podcasts that you do and you have certain advertising revenue that you want to meet or whatever. What about
0: a receptionist? Hmm? A receptionist, for example.
1: Well, a receptionist has to be in person. So that's not not a job you can do virtually, right? Mm -hmm. So with uh, someone who is an executive assistant rather than a receptionist, let's talk about that. Someone who is an executive assistant can absolutely do their whole job virtually, and then their measures can be how satisfied you know how satisfied is your so it, it, is your executive with your performance, and the various stakeholders with your performance. There are clear goals, and you can have that sort of activity, where you know how satisfied is the executive on a scale. That's fine, and so you want to measure those. You can have also have goals like. Have you compute, Have you met all the deadlines for the week? That can be another sort of goal. There are plenty of goals, and every job that you can imagine has certain goals that mm-hmm. can be quantified and measured.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it's just taking, looking at it differently, taking a different perspective on it, mm-hmm. and brainstorming those goals. I really like it, mate. You've got a um, so the book is out and available That's on right. Amazon.com.
1: Yep, it's available on Amazon. Yep, go so check it out, Returning to Office and Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams. A manual yeah. on benchmarking to best practices for competitive advantage. It's a long time <laughs> you get that out well. Well, I, um, thank you, but uh, yeah, the, the brief one is Returning to Office and Leading Hybrid and Remote Teams.
0: I'll stick sure. the links in the show notes, guys, um, so you can, you can pick up a copy of the book. How can people best reach you, Gleb?
1: They can check out my website, for my company called disaster avoidanceexperts.com yep. again disaster avoidance experts.com. there's blogs, videos, podcasts, online courses, books of course, coaching training, consulting check out especially disaster experts.com forward slash subscribe. There's going to be an assessment on these dangerous judgment errors in the workplace, these cognitive biases and also a free course on making the wisest decisions, the wise decision maker course again, check that out at disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe.
0: I like it, mate. Really insightful. Thank you. I'll stick the links in the show notes, guys. Everyone listening out there, um, make sure you reach out to Dr. Gleb. Dr. Gleb, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. I appreciate it. Check it out, guys. Thehiddenwide.com, episode 1011. We'll see you next time. Peace, passion, and purpose. Bye for now.